Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Perfect. Nothing personal word of the day for Thursday, April 14th, a.k.a. my daughter's 24th birthday. Happy birthday, Kira. Perfect. Hey, that's funny. Kira, perfect birthday. But we're talking about Clayton Kershaw. He threw a perfect game. It's unreal. I thought he was done. I thought he was a number four, number five starter, full of injuries, First start of the season against the Minnesota Twinkies, and he throws the 24th perfect game of all time. A perfect game is when you get three up, three down, nine times. 27 up, 27 down. No walks, no hit by pitches, nobody on base, no errors, no nothing. We're talking nada. Nine innings in a row. One, two, three. He had his slider going. There were the important defensive plays, a shot up the middle, which would have been a base hit five years ago, 10 years ago, but now they had Gavin Lux, their second baseman, playing right up the middle. Perfect. He got it on a hop, threw it over to first base. You had timely hitting the three-nothing lead tight game. Everything was going great, and it was amazing because you never see it. In the history of baseball, this was only the 24th perfect game. Think about the number of games there are per day. Let's say all teams play. There's 30 teams, 15 games a day. They play 162 games a year. Baseball's been going on for over a hundo, maybe a buck 40. It's it's so cool. We were a part of history. What? Hold on. Coco, I we will. It was. Yes, it, it absolutely was a perfect game. I watched seven innings of it. Oh, all right. Do we, we can do that again then, if you want. I thought it was per, I that our whole segments though about how great it is that Clayton Kershaw was allowed to throw a perfect game and how amazing it is and how good for baseball. How young fans are talking about this morning. I figured everyone would be talking about the per. All right, we'll do it. Four, five, count me in. Sixty-nine, twenty-four. Perfect. Not the nothing personal word of the day for April 14th, 2022. It turns out that Clayton Kershaw got pulled from the game after seven innings. His manager, Dave Roberts, the president of baseball operations, Andrew Friedman, and supposedly the player, Clayton Kershaw, all said after seven perfect innings, where it's not like it was close. If you watch that game... I'm watching as a team president, and I'm getting excited because I'm about to watch history, and that's why you watch a baseball game because you never know every day could be history. 
He gets through the second inning, third inning. You don't pay attention to any of that. The fourth inning, I start calling the clubhouse manager. I'm starting to switch out bases every every inning so we can collect as much as we can that we can sell and give. We're getting extra t- ticket stubs. We're getting game-used balls. Fifth inning, everything's great. Sixth inning, my God, Minnesota's not even working him deep into the count. It's freezing cold in Minnesota. I can't believe he's doing so great. He's not schwitzing. He's not hot. He's not overheating. They've got a lead. Seventh inning through. Oh, my God, we're six outs away. Let's break in on MLB Network. This is why we did a network, and we got the rights in every local TV deal. MLB Network has the right to show any sort of history, historical event, 3,000th hit. I guess now maybe 2,000 hits would be historical. That's funny. It's not defined as what's historical. It used to be 3,000 hits, let's say 500 home runs, maybe your 50th, 60th home run, whatever the case may be. No hitters for sure. We're breaking in. Going for the cycle you're allowed to break in. Anything cool. MLB Network, they're excited. Everything's great. Clayton Kershaw comes off the mound, and then he does some weird stuff. And it's the stuff that when you're in baseball, you realize that's the stuff that dreams are not made of because that's the end of his night. When you give a hug at the end of an inning, you're out of the game. When you reach for your jacket at the end of an inning, even when it's cold out, but you do it in such a way you take your hat off, you take the goop out of your hair and all the other stuff you have on various body parts, you know you're not coming in the game. When anybody talks to a pitcher who's pitching a no-hitter or a perfect game after an inning, you know you're coming out of the game. When some guy walks up to you, slaps you on the butt, touches you on the knee, you're done. And I'm thinking, this can't be. They've got trying and warming up in the bullpen. I like that. We always talk to the managers. The managers would always tell us, I'm going to have someone ready. Because in a no-hit situation or in a perfect game situation, if we stretch the guy, the pitcher, the minute he gives up a hit or a walk or whatever the case may be, we're pulling him. So we have someone warming up. They're ready. And pitchers on the mound know when someone's warming up in the bullpen. They look back. They see it. But it's normal. So I'm thinking everything is progressing exactly as it should. And then he's out of the game. And I lost my mind. I was sitting there thinking to myself, One of the ways that baseball recovered after the 94 strike was with the steroid-infused home run chase that Sosa and McGuire took part in all the way back in 1998, coincidentally the year of my daughter's birth, my middle daughter's birth, my my second daughter's birth. Do you say middle? If you have girl, girl, boy, what do you say? It's not your middle daughter. It's your last daughter. It's your middle child. My last daughter and middle child's birth, they're going through and Everybody's paying attention to baseball. Fans are crowding into stadiums. The whole world was thrilled with it other than Bud Selig, which is ironic since he sort of allowed and produced that home run chase. But those type of special events are so rare. What would be the reason to not let it happen? So I was thinking as someone who wants to win games and win rings. If you're in the playoffs and you have a report, an analytics report that says third time through the lineup, this pitcher's ERA goes to 6.8. His whip goes to 2.79. Or 
you see signs of stressful innings or stressful batters. A stressful inning or batter is when you've got runners on and you are taking time. You're in the stretch, going deep into counts. Let's say you've thrown 134 pitches. Thank you, Johan Santana. I get it. Pull your pitcher, win the game, rings matter more. Clayton Kershaw had not pitched yet this season. It's early in the season. When you are protecting the arms of your young stars, I absolutely understand and agree why you're going to pull a pitcher in the sixth or seventh inning when the pitch count gets higher than you're comfortable with it being, even though there's the possibility of history. Because you've got six years of control with that player before free agency. You've got games you want to win in August and September. So you have to act accordingly. And these are scenarios that we would talk about in advance. I get it. Clayton Kershaw is in the ninth inning of his career. Clayton Kershaw has never thrown a perfect game. Clayton Kershaw knows exactly when he's done and when he's not. There is no reason to protect him. He's not in a long-term deal. There's no reason to protect him. He doesn't have many years left in his career. And arguably, a perfect game on his resume, now that he already has a World Series, a perfect game on his resume would be cherry on the top of a Hall of Fame career. But are we supposed to care about that as executives? The sad part is no. But is baseball supposed to care about that for its fans? The answer is an unabashed yes. So how, when you are trying to market the game and grow the game and lower the demographics and get young people engaged, how do those two concepts, when they go up against each other, how do you deal with it? Do you just dismiss it and say, listen, I know it would have been exciting, but it's just, it's never going to happen again. If Clayton Kershaw is not allowed to get into the eighth inning of that perfect game and wait to see what happens, there will not be another perfect game. If Clayton Kershaw is not allowed to continue to see even after a perfect game, if he can get another no-hitter, and people on Twitter and everywhere else, all the pundits said, once the perfect game's up, let it get him out of the game. He doesn't need another no-hitter. He's already had another no-hitter. Horse hockey. These are the things that cause top-of-the-fold news. When an ordinary pitcher that no one's ever heard of tosses a perfect game, that person goes down in history. Remember the Galarraga perfect game for Detroit? That was amazing. Oh, Jim Joyce screwed that one up. Go Google that story. There are moments in time that transcend the protection of arms. And I can say that because I don't run the team anymore. But from a marketing standpoint, we've got to find a way. So here's the solution. Number one, there has to be a game plan before the game starts. It's a two-part game plan. It's preparing for the possibility that something rare is going to happen. We used to talk about this, folks. We actually would sit with the manager. I'd talk to the general manager, and we would contemplate, in this scenario, what are we doing? In that scenario, what are we doing? And for example, the Marlins have never had anyone hit for a cycle. And I was very clear. 
that if we have a player who is one hit away from a cycle, whether a cycle is when you hit a single, double, triple, and home run in a game. Marlins have never had it. We've had a bunch of no-hitters, but no cycles. So my position always was, if we've got a young pitcher who can pitch a no-hitter, I'm going to let it go. You can pull him for pitch count. But if we have a position player who you would normally say, let's pinch hit for for a lefty-righty matchup, or he's not good against this particular closer or that particular reliever, if we have a player available for the cycle, under no circumstances will that player be pinch hit for. Number two, the players were always told, hey, we've never had a cycle. If you have a chance for a cycle, do it. Now, the GM would always say to me, if we're down one run and a player needs a double for a cycle and there's under two outs and that player has a chance to go get a triple, I'm not going to tell that player to stop at second base. And under that scenario, I would say, you're right. I want the win. But under any other scenario... I'm going to have him stop at second base. If we're down three runs, even if he has a clear path to third base, if we're up three runs and he has a clear path to third base with under two outs, stop at second base, get the cycle. And the reason that we do that is that is a marketing opportunity. That is something that we can say that happened in the Marlins history. Put it up in the ballpark. Coco wants me to tell you a story of Henderson Alvarez. I've already told that story. It's too good. We had a player named Henderson Alvarez who we traded uh, in 2012. We got him from the Blue Jays in that huge, crazy trade that all the shipping container on Levitard show hated. Ended up being a great baseball trade. It was just very tough for the fans to take, and I get it. It was the hardest trade I've ever been a part of, even harder than Cabrera, believe it or not. God, I've had a lot of bad trades. Not bad trades, just tough trades. Although the Cabrera trade was a bad trade, but the Henderson Alvarez trade wasn't. Henderson Alvarez was a funny guy. Henderson Alvarez was throwing a no-hitter on the final game of a season that we had lost. What year was that? 2013, where we had lost 100 games, and he was there. Was it 2014? It was one of those years after 2012. 2013, I think that's the year under Mike Redman where we lost 100 games on the nose. I think we were actually 62-100. and 100. And I didn't want to lose 100 games because I had never lost 100 games in my career. And then when we lost our 100th game, which I believe was on the second to last game of the season, I certainly did not want to lose 101. So Henderson Alvarez is on the mound. He's pitching great. Last game of the season, he's one of our young players. Our view of that while it was happening, while we were preparing for that game, hey, we got, we're playing for nothing here. If Henderson Alvarez has a chance to do something, we're going to let him do it. And so he stays in the game. He's got a no-hitter going. And his pitch count was not low, but it wasn't out of this world. It wasn't in the Santana stratosphere. He's the guy who thought he pitched a no-hitter because he didn't know the score of the game. And if you go back and look at the highlights of that game, when he gets the third out in the top of the ninth inning, he celebrates on the mound waiting for everyone to run to him and cheer, and everyone's going back toward the dugout. He didn't know the score was 0-0. I asked him about that after, and I've spoken to players about that. It's the weirdest thing, isn't it? The lack of awareness that some players have during the course of a game because they're either locked into what they're doing or they're just focused on the crowd or they're thinking about what they're doing after the game where they're not exactly understanding. And as executives and fans, you say to yourself, how are you not taking a pitch when you're down two runs in the ninth and you've got, we need a base runner. And then you talk to the player after and he's like, huh? We're down two runs. I'm not here to take a pitch. I'm here to swing. Anyway, so we went back to the 
He went back to the dugout. We had a conversation that game. Apropos of the Kershaw perfect game, we had a conversation up in the box. We're watching the game. It's at home. It's the top of the ninth. Alvarez goes out. He only has 99 pitches. He's got the no-hitter through nine, but we haven't scored. And we made a decision and communicated it that Alvarez was going to go out for the 10th because we wanted him to get the no-hitter. There's nothing to lose at that point. The Marlins ended up winning on a pass ball in the bottom of the ninth, which was amazing. I believe Stanton scored the winning run on a pass ball to finish 62-100, and 100, which then gave Alvarez the no-hitter on the walk-off. That was a very memorable end-of-season game for a very ridiculously difficult 100-loss season, the only one of 18 that I had. So the answer is, these things are talked about. So how the Dodgers would not allow Kershaw to go, it's hurting baseball. So after the game, do you know what happened? After the game, Dave Roberts and whoever was the executive at the game, Andrew Freeman, whoever was there, whoever was the PR media relations person traveling with the Dodgers, they got to Kershaw and they said, all right, we're going to need an answer. And here's what the answer is going to have to be when the media says to you, hey, uh, what happened out there? You're going to have to say that you wanted out of the game. You're going to have to say that you were ready to be taken out. You cannot leave Dave Roberts out to dry because he's already gotten criticized. Remember when he pulled Rich Hill? He was having a perfect game. And God, that was, uh, I remember that game. That was against us. Another tough season in 2016. So Dave Roberts has done this before. Many pitchers, Kevin Cash did it to Blake Snell in the freaking World Series, might I add. So you get to Clayton Kershaw. Clayton Kershaw agrees to play ball. He's been around the block. He's a veteran. And he tells the media, hey, blame the lockout. Blame this on the fact I didn't pick up a ball until January. My slider had no bite. I was good with the decision. I was ready to come out of the game. That may have been one of the top 10 most bothersome quotes I've seen. There were 500 pitchers who were preparing during the lockout who took the time to throw who were ready come spring training. It's nothing to do with the lockout that you were not prepared or stretched out. You're Clayton Kershaw. You should have said, I had an opportunity tonight that I may never have again. Well, my, while my pitches were not sharp in the seventh inning, I was getting quick contact. And at 80 pitches, I figured I'm going to go until the perfecto's done. I told Roberts I didn't need another no-hitter, which is ridiculous because once you have another no-hitter, you put that on your resume, and that is what legacies and generations of people know you as. One-time World Series champion, perfect game, no-hitters, etc. That's what you would have said. That's what you should have said. But Clayton Kershaw is a veteran, so he was okay. Perfect. Can you believe there was no perfect game yesterday? I'm still upset about it. I'm also incredibly, incredibly upset. This next topic is going to put your seatbelt on. I understand that as a white person of privilege that some of you may not want to hear from me on this topic, but you are going to, and especially because you asked about it. You know what I want? (laughs) I want to talk to Samson. So you want to talk to Samson, get in my Twitter, David P. Samson, please, if you don't mind. Hit follow, ask a question, get into my DMs. They're open. 
I don't know how long they're going to be open, but they are definitely currently open. And I respond. You can ask people. I don't respond to everyone because I can't. I don't know why I have to keep excusing that. Coca always says to me after the show, stop saying that. No one expects someone to respond to every DM. But all this comes from my childhood where I would send letters to, I sent a letter to David Stern. I sent a letter to corporations. I always was trying to contact actual letters, actually. Actually, love. And I never got an answer from anybody. And that's the equivalent of the modern day DM, even though it's a much bigger pain in the ass to do a letter. But no one ever responded because I always thought, like I'd send things to athletes. I just was one of those guys. I wanted contact. I wanted to feel like I had some connectivity to these people. Nope. Madonna, would you answer? Actually, don't answer me anymore, Madonna. I have frozen Madonna in the 1980s and 90s. You're frozen. Vogue, Vogue. I can't even, I can't believe what she did. Why? Why? My love is now crossed the borderline. Okay, so say you want to talk to Samson as a question. Hey, David. Hi. Can you explain this to me? Why is this such a big deal? Bunting with a large lead? Question mark. I feel like you're missing the real thing that happened in that game, but I got two things to discuss with you. And it's going to take a minute. But we have time. And our retention rate is so good that you're going to listen. And believe me, we don't take that for granted. Two concepts here. One, unwritten rules of baseball. Two, race. Let's take the easy one first. Unwritten rules of baseball. When you've got a 10-run lead, you do not steal a base, you do not bunt, and you do not score on a sacrifice fly. Those are the unwritten rules. If you violate the unwritten rules, you get hit in the tuchus by a Tony La Russa-led team. You get criticized. You may have the possibility of a bench-clearing brawl. Those are the rules. Well, I've got a news flash for everybody in baseball. There are no more unwritten rules. This marks the final day of such. Guess why? Because the way baseball is played today, there is no safe lead. You do not know for sure how a game is going to end, and every win matters. My job as managing a team, general managing a team, being a president of a team, being a player on a team, you have one job, notwithstanding the fact that I'd like to get a perfect game and I've got a big enough lead, I'm going to let my pitcher go until one guy gets on base. The tie and run won't even come to the plate for crying out loud. You have one job and that's to win games. Now, don't talk to me about payrolls and about tanking and about all the other different things. We're talking about a specific game on any given night and you know by watching early season games no matter what the worst team in the league is going to win 50 games so 50 nights that's over a month and a half almost two months out of a six-month season where they go to bed happy because they've won a game when your job is to win a game your job is to score as many runs as you can and we also cared about a stat called run differential because there was always a much higher correlation between a positive run differential and being above 500 than there was of any other stat. Much more so than runs scored, much more so than BA batting average of balls in play, BA BIP, or any of the other war, add up the war, subtract the, the piece, 
go through all the analytics, have the people come up to you and say, hey, I'm an Ivy League guy. Take a look at this 40-page sheet, and I'll tell you why our shortstop needs to be playing one step to the right. Hey, by the way, on a side note, I've got another 40-page paper that tells me on a 2-1 pitch, when you're facing pitcher X, you got to go the other way. Thanks for that little nugget. But the fact of the matter is that however you get there, the only stat that matters, and I used to have very funny debates about this, what do you think is the most important stat in baseball? Just out of curiosity. I wish I had a, hello, I'm asking the studio audience, what's the only stat that everybody truly cares about? Yeah, you got it. Run scored. Because without scoring runs, that's the only way they judge winning a game. I don't care if I shoot 30% in the NBA. If I get all the offensive rebounds and it takes me five shots, I've one for five, I'm shooting 20%, but I scored two points on the possession. That's a win. So in baseball, I care about runs. So in the game between San Francisco and San Diego, there's a huge lead for San Francisco. And one of the players puts down a bunt. And the manager, Bob Melvin, who is a great manager, one of the older managers in the game, he came from Oakland, he was a little visibly upset. Then, of course, you had the third base coach, a guy named Mike Schilt, the manager who was recently fired by the Cardinals, the one who we did a segment on because he was so emotional about being fired. And we talked about front office, I think, John Moseliak, who is the president of baseball operations for the Cardinals, fired him for philosophical differences. I always laughed. Hey, you're divorced for irreconcilable differences. It's always a good one. That was a good movie with Ryan O'Neill and Drew Barrymore, actually. So I don't know why that just came in my head. So a couple of things happened during this game between San Diego and San Francisco. The first one is that an unwritten rule was violated, and it led me to think that it's time that baseball stops. And the only way for baseball to stop is for managers to stop being old and white. And once that happens, then that'll be the end of the unwritten rules. And then everyone will realize, do whatever you have to do. If there's a shift, now shifts may be banned next year, a shift is when you've got three players on one side of second base, when there's supposed to be two, and there's a huge amount of space open on one side, and if you need base runners, there's absolutely a reason to bunt or to push bunt to get yourself on base if you're down two in the ninth inning. Not enough players do it. It's also very difficult to do, so I've been told by professional hitters, but that said, if you have an opportunity to get on base, that's your job. Get on base, get run scored. Fine. I'm willing to move past that issue. But then something happened that I'm not willing to move past. The third base coach, Mike Schilt, was so angry about the bunt attempt. He looked into the dugout and he was trying to talk to people in the Giants dugout and show his displeasure at this act of treason, bunting for a base hit in a 10-run game. For whatever reason, he couldn't find who he was talking to, who he wanted to talk to. Schilt's been in the game forever. So Schilt was asking, hey, where's this guy? Where's this guy? And the first base coach for the Giants, who was obviously in the dugout because the Giants were not hitting, the first base coach says, hey, can I help you? Who are you looking for? And Schilt said something to the effect of control that MFR." totally normal. I disagree with the premise, 
because I don't ever want my coach talking into the other dugout. I don't want my base coaches starting any brawls. I don't want anything. I don't want my coaches to be upset that the other team is trying to score their 11th or 12th run because I want us to be better. But Schilt was angry. Also an old school manager, former manager. So the third base, first base coach, excuse me, for the Giants says something. They get into a little conversation and all of a sudden he gets ejected. The umpire, Greg Gibson, did not eject Schilt, did not eject Melvin. He ejected the first base coach of the Giants who was in the dugout. The first base coach leaves. He was ejected for instigating, supposedly. I'm not sure what he instigated. He leaves. The Giants then have a woman who takes over as the first base coach. History is made that night, and guess what we're talking about? We're talking about race. And the reason we're talking about race is that Antoine Richardson, the first base coach of the Giants, after the game, said something, and this is where it gets dicey, because I don't want you to think that I am saying this from a position of of white privilege. Because if I'm missing something, then tell me. I want to learn. Richardson said that what Schilt said to him were disproportionately unwarranted and reeked of undertones of racism when he referred to me as that MFR, as if I was to be controlled or a piece of property or enslaved. I was taken aback by that. I absolutely understand. Haven't walked in the shoes of someone who's black have never been a slave, don't have family members who were slaves or generations behind me. Maybe I'm not allowed to talk about it because of who I am and what I look like. But I just have a question. In general, when you have something that you are trying to educate people about, whether it's race, whether it is math, whether it is interpersonal relationships, it doesn't matter what the situation is. When you are trying to educate someone, isn't it best to educate through an example that is actually indicative of the underlying issue that you are trying to educate a person on? When you tell someone about race and about the fact that you've, your people have been enslaved, that you have been treated as a piece of property, that in fact you were a controlled piece of property, and you use the example of being called an MFR. How is that furthering the education process of not just the individual who said the statement, but also of the general collective humanity? I've been called an MFR. I've called people an MFR. It does not have one thing to do with race. And Mike Schilt may be a lot of things, folks. There's one thing that every player will tell you, every person will tell you who's met him. He is the furthest thing from a racist that ever existed. I was about to say literally, but that's an incorrect usage of the term. And I thought it did more to hurt race relations than help. It did more to stagnate the improvement, the awareness that I hope is existing and getting better. It actually moves things backwards to me. 
because it causes racist people to roll their eyes and it gives them a confirmation bias of, look, everything's always about race. When you are trying to make an example of a situation, be right. And that helps us learn and it helps us be better. It helps us understand that the way we used to think about things is wrong and we need to think about them better today and moving forward. We need to teach people to look at a situation and react to it in a better way. I get all of that and I'm in favor of it and I want it. This had the opposite impact. So guess what happened the next day? Richardson went up to Shilton, they spoke pregame. And Richardson apologized. Richardson said, I realized that you weren't being racist, that that wasn't your impression. That wasn't what you were trying to convey. They then released a quote. They released a statement. They did this detente in front of everyone to see. And they both said, Schultz said, thank you, because my family is being harassed as being racist. I'm being harassed as being racist, and I'm not, we're not. Richardson said, this is more something we both want to use as an opportunity to bring awareness. That sometimes words that are harmless are very insensitive to others. Amen. Except that should be said on day one, on direct. And you don't use it when you're called an MFR. You use it when someone says a word or a phrase that stirs up a level of emotion that discusses something from the past that that person is unaware of. That was my point from the beginning. And baseball, as a commissioner's office and an industry, they were beside themselves. They had a situation where Alyssa Nacken was making history, the first woman to ever be on the field of a major league game. Forget the reason why, because a player got ejected or a po- coach got ejected, doesn't matter. The Giants are the perfect team to have done it. It would have been top of the fold, as big a, a news as when Kim Ang was hired to be the GM of the Marlins. And instead, the only conversation was about what happened between Richardson and Schilt. Another opportunity missed by Major League Baseball because of the situation that occurs when there is not communication before the fact and people go public and then have to walk it back. All right, let's take a break, Coca. When we come back, we're going to review uh, Paul Giamatti, one of my favorite alumni of Yale, and we're going to explain to him something that he should probably think about doing differently. We'll be right back. We're also going to talk about our picks yesterday because the NBA had some cool stuff that happened last night. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. 
If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. It's David Sampson. Thank you for rating, reviewing, following, telling your friends about Nothing Personal, all the cool things that you do. We're here for you every day. I watch a movie, a TV series. I've been watching Billions. I don't love the fact that I have to wait to watch it once a week. I did learn that if you have uh, Showtime, the, the service and the app on your TV, I had been waiting till Sunday night to watch every episode of season six. It turns out they're released Sunday morning. So you don't have to wait till nighttime. I wasn't aware of that. So Billions is a show that stars Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis. It is a show about the financial world. It pits the attorney general, somebody in government against rich hedge fund managers who are always trying to bend the law, break the law. It is a phenomenal series. The first five seasons with Damian Lewis, who you may remember from Homeland, it was must-see TV. So Damian Lewis leaves Billions because of a family situation in England. He had been commuting, by the way, from where he lives in England to film Billions all these years. And he leaves the show. I believe his wife, unfortunately, is sick. Either way, they bring in Corey Stahl, who you may have seen in West Side Story, who played the investigator, not Officer Krupke, but one of the investigators, one of the, one of the police chiefs maybe in, in West Side Story. His name on the show is Michael Prince. They created another foil for Paul Giamatti. And the way it works in Billions and in many TV shows and movies, you have to have a hero, you have to have a villain. But what makes something exciting is when you are rooting for the hero or against the villain. Or I guess some people would be contrarians and they say they want to root for the villain and against the hero. However you want to be. But the underlying issue remains the same. You've got to be rooting for one side or the other. This season, there was absolutely nobody and nothing to root for. If you have not been watching season six, don't start. If you are watching season six, stop. It is not worth it. And it got me thinking about money. The reason why Billions has a season six is that the ratings, the viewers, people who are clamoring for it, they felt as though there was more meat left on the bone. There were more stories to tell even with Damian Lewis leaving. The best shows, the best movies, they know when to end. Billion season six, they had no idea when to end. Okay, nothing personal pick of the day. We won both. Did you see Corbin Burns? Yes, he pitched much better for the Brewers. The Brewers beat the Orioles 4-2. to two. They needed two in the eighth. One of their bullpen, they've got two great bullpen arms at the end, which really is what you need to win a ring. Devin Williams and Josh Hader. I was just thinking, what is the name of the actor in Napoleon Dynamite, Coca? Because for whatever reason, I was just thinking about that person. Josh Hader is the lefty who pitches for the Brewers, the all-star closer. Do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, he actually plays Napoleon Dynamite. I can't, maybe, is it John? Is it John? Yes! John Hader. That's awesome. 
Anyway, the Brewers beat the Orioles. That's a win. And then I was watching the play-in games. I'm in. I'm in on the Hawks. We did a wait to see yesterday when we tell you something's going to happen, and then we'll revisit it. Our wait to see was that the Hawks are going to make the playoffs. They're going to win two in a row. They crushed the Hornets. Crushed them. So we're 44 and 36. All right, no NBA tonight, but we have some baseball. Of course, the Los Angeles Anaheim Angels, the Anaheim Angels of Los Angeles, the Otani, Trout, Rendon-led Angels, they're having troubles winning games. They've got Otani on the mound. And I wanted to mention the psychology of what it means to be Otani. Probably the most recognizable athlete in Japan now. Sorry, Ichiro. Number two, he is the defending unanimous AL MVP. 46 homers, 100 RBIs last year. He pitched 100 and something innings of, you know, number two, number three starter stuff. He's pitching tonight, but his bat has really been a problem. He's four for 25 this season. He has no home runs, only one extra base hit. And as much as he will say that his slump at the plate will not impact his time on the mound, I don't buy it. I'm taking the Rangers over the Angels and Otani tonight. The Texas Rangers are my absolute winner for most disappointing start only because they signed Seager, they signed Simeon, they're supposed to be good and they stink. But that's the pick. All right. I read something yesterday that surprised me a little bit. I didn't realize when Tom Brady retired that he was negotiating with Stephen Ross. Did you? Were you aware that Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, wanted Tom Brady to be a minority owner of the Dolphins? Did you know that the Dolphins didn't want to hire Xavier McDaniel? Instead, they wanted to hire Sean Payton, the erstwhile coach of the New Orleans Saints? Were you aware of any of this when Tom Brady unretired and said he was going back to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and then Bruce Arians got fired? Just asking. A couple days ago, it came out that there was a full plan in place with the Miami Dolphins, and that plan was ready to be executed on. They were going to make Tom Brady just like Derek Jeter. And at the time, Derek Jeter was still with the Marlins as the owner and CEO, getting a lot of attention around town. There's connectivity between Brady and Jeter, only in that Brady's the GOAT, Jeter's not. And Jeter has a house in Tampa that Brady lived in. And they each played for only one team. Oh, no, Brady played for two teams. Yeah, no, they're not similar at all. But that said, Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, has had a career as an owner in Miami that makes my career as president look good. No playoff wins, no Super Bowls, obviously, no conference championship appearances, obviously, because he's never won a playoff game. Done a lot of cool things with Dolphin Stadium, which is now called Hard Rock Stadium. They're having the Grand Prix there in a couple weeks. Just they have the tennis tournament there that moved up from Homestead. Just a lot from Key Biscayne, I mean. So a lot of cool things. But there's one thing that Stephen Ross is obsessed over as he hits into his 85th year. He's newly single. He's all excited. Everything's great. He wants to win, and he's got a chance to do something that every Dolphins fan wants to do. Give a little, uh, a little Ets, a zutz. I can't think of the Yiddish word right now. I think it's a zetz to Robert Kraft and the New England Patriots. 
because Tom Brady is known as a Patriot. He's not known as a Buccaneer, even though he won a Super Bowl with him. And my point is that when you have a chance to do something to your rival, you're going to do it. So Steve Ross says, hey, I think you and Giselle would be super happy in Miami. You're not going to live your life in Boston. You sold your house in Boston. You could go to L.A., but you're going to get lost in a sea of celebrities. You've got LeBron out in L.A. who's already started an entertainment company. You can come here and own Miami because Jeter has got nothing accomplished. And the fact is, I spoke to Bruce Sherman. He's going to get his ass fired. So why don't you come to Miami? We're going to give you a deal where you're going to get a percentage of the team. You have to make absolutely zero investment up front. It'll, we'll, we'll frame it for tax reasons as a profit participation. Then we're going to put you as the top of the front office the way Elway is or was in Denver. And you're going to live happily ever after. Don't worry about Dan Marino and what role he has because he's not interested anymore in being the top guy. He's got his own issues. He, he tried. He had a chance. This is going to be your town, your city. Wait a minute. We have a small problem. We just are going to fire our black coach. So we just have to figure out how we're going to do that because we want to bring in a white coach. We're going to have to do some interviews and then we're going to bring in another white head of of football operations. But we've got Chris Greer who's black. So I think it's all going to work out fine. Let's proceed. Let's start putting paper to pen, pen to paper. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Tom, Tom, I'm so sorry. Can you believe what just happened? Brian Flores just sued us. Yeah, the guy used to be the coach. He alleged not just racial discrimination against us, but the entire league. And on top of that, he's accusing me of throwing games. Oh my God, there's way too much heat, way too much heat. We can't do it. We got to find another coach. We have to find another coach. We can't have Sean Payton. We got to find a coach who has some sort of connection. We we have to find a minority coach, which I think, what's McDaniel's first name? Coca, because it's not, It's definitely not Xavier. I think I said Xavier. He was a player for the Knicks and the Celtics. Mike, Mike McDaniel, thank you. So we have to make sure that we we, we can't hire your guy. And and frankly, Tom, we can't hire you. It's off. Can we just delay this by a year? Why don't you go back, play for Tampa for one year, because we, we, we'll see in the Super Bowl, that may be fun, but you won't be competing directly against us, and then we'll execute our plan after. I know I'll be a year older, but I'm good. If you're running a team, do you allow yourself to change plans because of the lawsuit that Brian Flores? Can you imagine the PR heat that you're feeling? Or do you imagine the guilty conscience that you have? which doesn't need even one single accuser, but then you get the single accuser? Can you imagine why the Dolphins never win? Because they actually have a plan and then refuse to execute it. And believe me, I understand what it is to make a plan and not execute it and then switch plans more often than you switch your underwear. I get it. But finally, the Dolphins were thinking they know what they were going to do and it disappeared. That's some pretty serious power you're giving to Brian Flores. But I'm going to give you a wait to see. And the wait to see is that eventually this will all calm down. The Brian Flores lawsuit will go away. It will not survive a motion to dismiss. And then there'll be some changes made. And then you will see Tom Brady in his post-playing day career end up in the Dolphins front office. You want to do a wait to see, Coca? Here it is. Tom Brady will end up with the Dolphins after his playing career is over. That's our show for today. Thank you very much. It's just business. 
This is nothing personal. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.